Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the main course without Patrick Martins on Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Alexis McLaughlin, and I'm very excited to have in studio today Wolfgang Bonn of Eddie and the Wolf and of the new uh, brew pub, Paulinier, or Paul... I, Paulana. Paulana. I, I, I can't do the German thing. That's I can't okay. do any language thing. Good morning, Alexis. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Before we dive in uh, to talk about um, your spots, I want to uh, just uh, tell you guys a little bit about an upcoming event that we're really excited uh, to be doing, um, Heritage Foods USA and uh, Lupe Osteria Romano, um, one of Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich's early spots. Uh, we're doing an upcoming event. It's going to be a lunch tasting. Um, three breeds of animals. So basically we're doing some lamb uh, pork and chicken, and we're going to taste four different um, breeds of, or well, three breeds, four, and it's very confusing. So it's just going to be like a meat tasting extravaganza. Um, on June 28th, our uh, farmers are coming in. We're going to have Frank Reese there. He's a poultry farmer. We're going to have Craig Good there with his wife, Amy Good. And we're also going to have Ben and Grace Mackin, who are lamb farmers in Vermont. Um, so if you guys are interested, uh, go ahead and shoot us an email at info at Heritage Foods USA for a bit more information. It's plastered all over uh, social media right now, um, but it should be really great. Uh, tickets are, I think, 145 a person, and it covers you know the whole four-course co- four tasting. Um, should be a really special event. Um, we look forward to hopefully seeing you guys out there. Um, Chef Jason Denton is really... Uh, putting together something special but um that's it that's that's my plug uh starting out with and um yeah wolfgang thank you hi welcome hello (laughs) um so i actually was stopped by the other night i I still can't pronounce the name paulana 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 it sounds like a pollyanna a little bit well it's named after after a brewery in germany which has uh, almost 400 years of uh of history uh, it was founded by monks who came from northern Italy, from Paolo, uh, and then that's why they called him Paulana. Yeah. So those were the monks from Paolo. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know the interesting thing about this spot—it's in—it's in the Bowery, but it is itself a microbrew and a restaurant. Like you guys are brewing beer on site. Uh, we are a microbrewery. Uh, we are affiliated with uh, Paulana, but we we have nothing really in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides that, our brewmaster Andreas, who who worked for Paulana for fifteen years, basically had all his education at the brewery. Uh, but he's using his own recipes, and uh, we are proud of his recipes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's it's. You- 
to see uh, you know a microbrew in New York City, you know in in the space like in putting out what is it five five beers and a seasonal. Now we usually have uh, four traditional mm-hmm. uh, uh, standard beers, and then always one seasonal. Yeah. So we have a Hefeweizen, which is the the number one Polana brew in in Munich. Uh, obviously, his recipe, and he's changing it uh, throughout the seasons. So he makes them a little bit lighter and fresher in summer, mm-hmm. and a little heavier and richer in winter. Uh, we always have a lager. We have a, a dark one, a dunkel. And uh, since we're in America, since we're in New York City, we also have a, an IPA. Which is not traditional, but it was delicious. Thank you very much. Um, what, is it, what does it mean, top, top fermenting hops? Well, there, there are two, two groups, basically, two peer groups. There's the, the top fermented and the bottom fermented. Uh, the top fermented is also called the ale family. So IPA would be in the ale family, Hefeweizen would be in the ale family, and uh, the bottom fermented ones are the, the lager family. Okay, and lager, because that's <coughs> fermented at cooler temperatures for longer durations? Exactly. Lager usually takes uh, about three and a half to four weeks, versus uh, the ale family is about two weeks. Yeah, so depending on how impatient you are exactly. <laughs> when, you <laughs> want, when you want your beer. Um, did, you know, did you know about beer this much about beer before going into this venture because it seems like a lot to to, you know you you come from you know an executive chef position um you know working working with you know traditional you know german food but where you know i know beer is a component but going into a venture where where now it's like actually a functioning microbrew i feel like you got to have you know some some really good knowledge there or be working with some really trustworthy people well, my background, I'm, I'm coming from Austria, from the very eastern part uh, called Burgenland, which is a wine region. So my whole family was in the wine business. And I grew up with my grandfathers. Uh, I helped them uh, crush the, the grapes uh, while I was a little boy. And then later on, I was harvesting the grapes. So that this was really what I grew up with and where my, pa- my patient was. And uh, throughout the first couple of years, it was always like food and wine and uh, I put all my 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 time and my uh, my energy into into those two things, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I got affiliated with uh, Paulana, and uh, so I spent a lot of time with with Andreas, our brewmaster, and uh, started learning about beer, like the different the different brews and the different uh, brands, hops, malts, and what it does to to the beer. And uh, I have to say, it's quite interesting. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. I think the the thing that I really enjoyed the most um, with the beers, uh, they all tasted. They they had this this like common thread throughout. Um, they. I guess it would be like kind of like they were all in the same family. They were all distinctly different. They, you know, their own style, but they all seemed related the way like you know siblings and cousins kind of were. Like there was just like this nice like common thread. It was a nice consistency. I think it's that uh, that more um, yeast yeast forward kind of that banana flavor with the hefeweizen that you get, but it, it carried nicely through even to the IPA. I don't know. It was it was unique. It was just something something different, something enjoyable. Well, I think you can definitely see that it's a European brewmaster versus an, an American yeah. uh, brewmaster, and he, he clearly <laughs> he grew up with with a different f- flavor profile when it came to beer, and so even when you when you taste the IPA and you compare it to IPAs, uh, usual American IPAs, it's it's much softer, it's much more 
um, I would almost say has more a feminine touch than than most of the American IPAs. Yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the tenets of, of German beer, you know, as I understand it, is, you know, it's just it's a Germans make a very drinkable beer. Um, you know, something like you can really enjoy. Like it's not overly aggressive. It is. It is a little bit soft, a little rounder. Um, I was really surprised. There's no. There's no spices, no fruit, no additives in brewing. But it really had a nice, like, kind of warm, spiced, sort of, you know, feel to it. And it was a little bit. It just, you know, uh, just like a rounder, richer tone. Well, I think one of the reasons for that is, is also that he he is playing around with a lot of different hops. And uh, you're probably familiar with that, but there is uh, the the American hops, which which are grown here in the U.S., versus the European hops. They they are quite different. So uh, he always tries to use a mix of different hops, even when he does uh, an IPA. Um, obviously, the IPA, uh, the, the hop content in the IPAs is like four times higher than in a in a lager or in a in a Hefeweizen. And uh, so he tries to give it his touch and and still like. That does a little mix to bring out the hoppiness, which you need in an IPA, but still have a little bit of that, that European touch. Yeah. Well, it works It works well. Um, Complements the food nicely, although I guess that's, you know, that's kind of the history of the food as well. They came up together. Um, Thank you. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about, you know, <laughs> developing, you know, what you wanted, what, what the vision was for the space, because... Um, it's you know it's it's very it seems very traditional beer garden but you know that is American beer garden the same as you know um, Bavarian beer garden would be or is our our idea of a beer garden you know Americanized as I would imagine? Well, I think beer garden for me beer garden or for for people in Germany and and I would say for people in 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 the U.S. or in New York it's the same thing. It's. Uh, it's a huge space. It's a it's a place where where families and friends come together, and uh, this is kind of what we wanted to create. Um, the I, I took over Polana after it it was already in operation for about three months, and uh, I decided I, I wanted to make a change of interior, and <laughs> so I closed it down for another two months and uh, changed the whole the design and. Try to give it a little bit of a warmer feeling, a more rustic feeling, yeah. but definitely more communal. Uh, we we created out of uh, reclaimed wood, 150 year old wood from uh, North Carolina. We created those massive communal tables, which can sit up to 20 people, and then we also have like beautiful like booths on the on the side of the room. And uh, I think this is important when you when you go to a beer garden. If, even if you come by yourself or in, in a small group, you want to be together with a lot of different people who all enjoy the same thing: good food and good beer. Yeah, that is that is really the uh, the staple of the beer garden. I guess is mo- most important, you know, is the the atmosphere in the community. You know, sitting all together, kind of loud and and just having fun. Um, I was really excited. I the first thing that I went looking for on the menu was pork knuckle, of course, because that is just like the most typical beer garden for me, you know, at least experience um, I can imagine. Uh, is that is that something that's hard to you know introduce people to, or do you find like you know American American you know diners are like familiar enough? Because that's not really you know. A choice cut. 
Uh, well, I would say it's uh, it has a growing popularity. Uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit uh, more difficult, but uh, we're open now for a little bit more than a year, and I see more and more people, especially on the weekends when you when you have a larger group, when you have uh, friends coming together. Um, it might be a little bit difficult when you have like 90 degrees out the outside temperature <laughs> <laughs> to order a pork knuckle, <laughs> which is first of all pretty large and then yeah. and also very rich. Uh, but I mean, for fall or for winter, I think it's it's a perfect dish for for a beer garden. Absolutely, uh, the, the the skin on the outside and the bone in the middle, which the, the skin holds everything together, the fat and the juiciness. Oh, the skin is the important part because oh that's what gets crispy. Exactly. That's like the you know the crackling, the crunch, and and just holds all the fat juices inside and. Everything just kind of melts together. It's it's like you know it's like it's self-contained, like a little baking dish. Exactly, but it's also quite difficult to to get the the skin like soft and 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 well and crackling at the same enough time. enough to to be able to get through it. <laughs> How long do you have to cook it for? Well, I mean, we cook it in two stages. I mean, yeah. the, the first part is we submerge it in fat and just poach it to to really soften up the skin. And then the second uh, step is uh, very, very high temperature, uh, and then 40 minutes in the oven to really like break up the skin and and dry it out and and get the, the crackling. Yeah, crisp happening. everything, crisp exactly. everything up. I can I can try that if I you know a spare you know 14 hours <laughs> in my oven. Sure, I think I'll just come and keep ordering them. Too much work. Um, you guys, you guys really do. Uh, Every like it seems like you know most things in house, um, you know, pretzel, sausage, just you know everything is bread. being yeah bread baked. Um, but is that is that well one of the things I inherited when I when I walked into Palana the first time, uh, of course I did a tour through the through the bar, through the dining room, the private dining room, and then I opened the door and there was the kitchen, and I was blown away. I mean I'm. I'm working here in New York in kitchens for 16 years, but I've never seen a kitchen that size. Well, we should start. Like, Polana is a huge space itself. It is it, like it is, you walk it in. It is humongous. Well, and especially because it's it's in the Bowery, which, you know, is, you know, um, downtown Manhattan is just, you know, spaces were always smaller and a little, you know, eclectic feeling. And you walk into this and it's a it's a pretty massive space. It's not imposing. You know, it feels really warm, but it's just... For New York, so much space, uh, and then I guess especially for the Lower East Side, where, where most restaurants have like fifty, sixty seats, and uh, we have a two hundred sixty seat capacity. <laughs> <laughs> so you you walk into the, this place, and you you the first thing you see are the copper uh, copper tanks where the brewmaster brews the beer, and uh, and then you see the tanks behind the bar. One of the things we do, uh, the, the beer comes straight out of the tank into the glass. We don't bottle anything. We don't put anything in kegs. So it's brewed. It goes into the fermentation room, stays there for two to four weeks, and then it's pumped into the tank, which feeds the bar. Huh. So it, it can't be any fresher than that. Yeah. Is it, is, it still, is it still fermenting then in the tank, I guess I would imagine? Or is it, I guess... No, I think. How do you do that? You you the, the get rid of the yeast. You would just have to filter it out. No, we don't. We, Not we we it's completely unfiltered and completely unstabilized. This is something we are very proud of. Uh, we do not touch anything. It's four ingredients. 
water, malt, uh, hops, and uh, and yeast, mm-hmm. and uh, it's fermented. And we we decided we're gonna keep it as is. So uh, I would say for the first four to five days, uh, it's it's actually pretty cloudy. Sometimes we have complaints about that. Oh, the beer is not is not clear. But this is really what we wanted to. Yeah. Because it really shows the full flavor. And uh, after a couple of days, the 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 yeast kind of like everything kind of comes out of suspension, settles out. Yeah, a it, it bit. settles on the bottom, and so the, the beer is getting clearer then. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. It it's amazing to think, you know, just uh, that it could be that fresh. I, I didn't even I, I had never really considered, you know, is beer unadulterated or, or what's what's going on after it ferments. But I guess you. Well, one of the beautiful things of that is that um, since there are no additives or stabilizations, uh, you actually don't get a headache. I mean, you if you if you have too much beer from Polana, you actually feel kind of tired the next day, but you never <laughs> will have a headache. <laughs> um, I we ran we ran into Falco and Pete um, uh, when we were at Polana on on Friday and. So I had a beautiful meal, uh, you know, flight of beers, getting ready to leave, run into friends like a booth over and they're playing. Do you know the game Eyes? No. Okay. So you you guys have like the big leader glasses, you know, yes. with the little, um, you know, uh, kind of like cutouts, those round, you know, um, right. cutouts, dimples going, you know, circling the glass and going up vertically. And so they have, they have leader glasses and someone, when you pick up your beer, you commit to drinking. You have to drink from one of those um, eyes, eyes to, the next. to the next. And if once you pick up your glass, you commit everyone else, and they have to do theirs. I, I don't really know the point of the game beyond <laughs> that. I don't think there was a winner or loser. I think everyone's winning. But I, <laughs> as long as I can drink, <laughs> as long as I can drink. So uh, I accidentally sat down into that game for a few rounds. And I woke up feeling fantastic the next day. I, I guess that's... Uh, you see, it's all natural. It's, <laughs> I, like, I remarked the next day, I just, I couldn't believe, like, I wasn't hungover at all. I I would never have thought it was what I was drinking. I just thought I was, like, a champion. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not that old yet. I, I can still do this. Maybe I, it I tried it a couple of times and it always worked. <laughs> just a couple of times. Sure. Just a couple of times. <laughs> Um, I want to go back. I want to get back to talking about the actual like kitchen space and what you guys are, are you know baking and, and making in there. Because um, you were you were saying the kitchen is just you know expansive, you know having room for production. So um, you, you've seen our dining room. It's uh, I think that the size is about two and a half to to three thousand square feet, and uh, <laughs> the kitchen is actually the same size. It's oh. just like one floor below. So the first time I walked into this kitchen, I was like, wow, the dishwashing area is usually the size <laughs> of the kitchen I was working in. And now here it is. This that's, is just a room for the dishwasher. That's like and, five of uh, my apartments. <laughs> <laughs> and I live with two other people. <laughs> exactly. So I just saw there was everything there, like all those different stations, the hot station, the cold station, the prep station, the... The big pastry station. The uh, one of the things which was not there, which I created, was, was the the butcher station, which also became the, the sausage making station. So with all that room, I said, well, well, why would we actually purchase anything? 
we have everything there already, so we should start making everything on our own. So we, we spent two months trying to figure out how to make the best sausages, <laughs> how to make pretzel, how to make breads. And uh, obviously we had friends in the industry who came in and helped us with certain things. And we started developing our own recipes, and, and here we are. Does that is that something that makes financial sense? You Absol know, with the restaurant, absolutely. Really, I mean, first of all, like the, the day we are, the, the time we are living right now, we we try to be less wasteful than we we used to be in the eighties, for instance. So we don't want to waste anything from if we get like a whole animal or if we uh, if we get get like a half a big, we can actually butcher it down. We can use the bones for stocks we can use the skin for for chips we can use certain parts and, and make sausages and it absolutely makes sense and uh, i think if you try our sausages you also see that since we're doing small patches we can also emulsify the fat much much nicer yeah which creates a much fluffier consistency of of the actual sausages some 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 customers find it find it a little bit weird and uh, artificial. I, I will say it was very it was very traditional. It was really good, and I, I like um, an emulsified sausage, which is really you know a grand hot dog, you know from but which is one of my favorite foods. Um, it was it was um, it was light. Like the casing was nice. The you know it really did have like a light texture like it, it wasn't heavy i guess would be you know what i'm searching for which was surprising because like you know sausage is a pretty you know heavy dish but it was it was, it was well i, 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 I find was. it less tense since since yeah. everything is 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 becoming once you, you don't have the 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 ground meats and then the the, the fat kind of in between and Sometimes the the industrial produced sausages, when you when you cut in, you you, you have the fat coming out already. This is not the case in uh, with the sausages we are making, and obviously it takes much longer and there's much more freezing involved because you you never want to overheat the fat because if you do that in the production, then then you cannot really emulsify it. Do you guys have more regulation since you're doing you know more in-house baking or? I'm curious. I, I'm, an op, I'm, I'm always in this operational stuff. Uh, I guess you're not curing, so it's so it's no, a little no. bit different. It, it's everything is freshly made uh, on a daily basis, and uh, no, everything is good. Cool. I, well, I always wonder, like New York State, man, they are so difficult with the regulations. Sometimes they, I, we were talking about it on on another show. They want to force all fish to be frozen once before it's you know uh, delivered to a restaurant and and that includes sushi grade fish like, like well i fish think i think they, they have to do it already for for sushi restaurants as far as i know every every fish which is uh, sushi grade fish or or used for for sushi has to be uh, frozen and, and i think what they do these days is like super freezing where they bring yeah. it down to like minus I think 80 degrees Celsius. Uh, don't ask me how much Fahrenheit that is. But <laughs> it's really cold and it's really hard to get it down there. Yeah. But that really stops any um, 
bacteria. It kills it. It's like like trichinosis-free pork that they do, which is like this deep freezing process, you know, to to get rid of anything. But there hasn't been trichinosis in pork in in like 70 years. And we're still, you know, worried about doing this for for charcuterie programs. Only only America is like this sterile. Right. Um, But it ends up killing killing the the restaurants. I mean, one, it it affects the food because you can't, you know, get those, you know, flavors that those kind of funky flavors that you're looking for. And then like, you know, to, you know, affect the distributor and the, and the chef and make them, you know, jump through these hoops. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I'm over it. Um, yeah. It, I have my hardship with that. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from Europe and, uh, where, where people are able to just do whatever they want and, uh, and here they're, there, there are a lot of regulations where it doesn't really make sense. It's, it's more, more that they don't understand what's going on. So yeah. let's not allow it because there could be something wrong with it. That's yeah. I think that's the problem is not understanding. I don't know. I, I don't know if we're getting better or worse with it too. I feel like you know, uh, food is is basically a topic of conversation like it never has been before. Um, it's, you know, especially in the U.S. where it's it's becoming. Um, culturally relevant in, in a way that's, you know, outside of just the home people are really starting to revere um, you know, be, become passionate about, you know, food and what they're eating where it's coming from um, so I hope with that we can start being a little bit more adventurous and, and understanding of, you know, different foods and processes and, and maybe, you know go that way because it's it holds a lot of things back if you, if you don't have freedom to really like produce an awesome product you know using the ingredients which can be you know time and a little you know bit of friendly mold uh if you don't have those those tools then like you'll never be able to make a, a product that can compete on you know a world market with you know other you know traditional you know cultural um you know, uh, food ways. Right. Well, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of like uh, farmers, like small organic farmers and just local farmers in the area. And um, I kind of have the feeling that there's there's a huge lobby, the huge uh, corporations, food corporations. And obviously they don't want uh, all those small organic farmers to bring their products to the market because they know that the product is actually better. It's healthier for people. And uh, so I think a lot of the lawmakers and a lot of the institutions try to slow them down and make it harder for them to to actually produce what they what they're gonna do. And and uh, it's sad, but uh, I think more and more people are getting on that on that bargain, and uh, they they like to see more of the healthy stuff and more of the organic and locally grown stuff. Do you think a restaurant uh, like Polana could have been could have been ten years ago or fifteen years ago? Do you think you guys would have had the you know I guess the that impetus to you know do everything in house? Because I imagine that you know another advantage of doing everything in house is that you get exactly what you want, and if it's you know an ingredient or something that you wouldn't have been able to find. Well, I think it would have been possible because uh, with my background, uh, yeah. I, I'm not coming from, from a city in Austria. I'm coming from the countryside. So I grew up with uh, my, my family butchering their own pigs and, and chicken and, and ducks and geese and, and whatever was around. And uh, we just, uh, the whole family came together when we, when we slaughtered a pig and we all 
we had to to produce or we had to to make something out of it in, in one day that the blood uh, we made blood sausage and uh, we made sausages and <clears throat> just butchered everything down and uh, froze it away or gave it to the neighbors mm -hmm. and uh, so this is this is just the, the way I I was raised and uh, in terms of produce we used whatever was in season we would never like uh, get uh, get an asparagus in winter or in, in fall asparagus was a spring vegetable and so whenever whenever there was it was available we really celebrated it and then it was gone for for nine months of the year until you get a chance and, to celebrate uh, again so if I had the chance like 10 years ago I would have definitely done the same thing already do but, you think but do you think uh, customers would have been would have been behind it and you know public would have I guess they don't even have to know it's one of those really interesting spots or interesting components I think makes uh, makes you know for a really um, quality experience but it's well I, I think in, in terms of, of a beer garden it's, it's a little bit different because a, a beer garden is always very meat centric yeah. and um, we usually we really try to to introduce vegetarian dishes or fish dishes and like even in summer and uh, even when when women come into the restaurant they don't really want to they don't want to go to a beer garden and then have a barley salad or <laughs> yeah or, or just uh, a peat salad. This is like we are going there and uh, we want to drink beer and we want to have a huxen or we want to have a sausage. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's go take a quick um, break and then we will be back. Answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to the main course. Uh, we have Wolfgang Bonn in studio from Planner, and we were just talking about beers and brats and everything else uh, beer garden related. So um, All the good stuff. <laughs> all the good stuff uh, in one. Um, how, long, how long have you been in New York? 
Um, I'm here for over 15 years now. I came early uh, 2000, and uh, I, I started off as a private chef for the Austrian UN ambassador, believe it really? or not. Really? Yeah. That was my start. Everyone has to get here somehow. <laughs> that's that's not the worst. That's not the worst way to come. As a diplomatic package, it's easier yeah. to come to the country. Did you have diplomatic immunity? Did you? No, 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 no. Get no. to ride around with the little flags. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, maybe. Sometimes I could use the driver to go shopping, but <laughs> that was very rarely. Cut, cut in line. It's like I I've got important places to be. <laughs> uh, so you came here, and then did. You just you liked it. You wanted to stay, or you of couldn't course. leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what happens that, that traps I, 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 you from I, I, the Austrian countryside? Then to I Manhattan. was chained to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding. So no, I um, I, I remember my, my first time being in the plane uh, approaching New York City, and uh, I looked down from the plane from the window, and I'm like, wow. This is super exciting. One day, I I hope I, I can have my own restaurant in this city. And, uh, and then I got to know the city, and I uh, got to know the people, and uh, it was super exciting. And through the the um, United Nations, through the diplomatic corps, I got to meet a lot of interesting people. Politics, culture, uh, industry, of course. So this is how I met my, my first investors. And... Um, Got to know them over the years, cooked for them many, many times, and uh, that's basically how we founded our founded our first restaurant. What was the What was the first spot in, in New York? Well, the the very first thing we did was um, well, after I, I cooked for the for the Austrian ambassador. After they undid the the chain, after they and undid let you the chain, the <laughs> I actually uh, uh, moved to the uh, German embassy and operated their in-house restaurant there. Oh wow! And so my, so my business partner, around. yeah, my business partner Eddie and I, we are we are doing that now for 15 years, and uh, then we started a small catering company because we wanted to do the same service for other other ambassadors and other countries, and uh, and a couple of years into, we actually found a spot on 58th Street, uh, and that that turned into seasonal. Was that? Did you? think that was there a lack of you know of austrians yeah no i mean of of the, of the food and of the food culture was it not in the city because new york is known for having every cuisine but i mean if you guys are going out and starting a catering company i imagine there was an opportunity there to do something yeah there was definitely opportunity because most uh, ambassadors or most countries they had uh, some housekeepers and the housekeepers would also like prepare the dishes for their their official dinners or lunches. So we actually saw a market there, and we got into that. And uh, we were price conscious. We were fresh, and uh, obviously, two trained chefs could do a little bit more than uh, a housekeeper from somewhere <laughs> around the world. <laughs> so you were yeah. running running unopposed. And then with seasonal, we just uh, we just saw an opportunity there. There are like tons of Italian, French, Japanese, Chinese restaurants around, but there there were not that many Austrian restaurants. And we thought something seasonally prepared, something which changes throughout the season, uh, was definitely something uh, New York was looking for. And uh, I was thinking about that this morning. How bizarre it, it it is to think that even just like five ten years ago. Uh, 
a menu being seasonal was not intuitively just how it was anyway. Like right. we had to move back towards right. seasonal food. Seasonal was that? Mich- did that get uh, Michelin star? Yeah, we got the Michelin star the first year we opened. That's amazing. Yeah, that was. We, That's we, exciting. Oh, it was super I exciting. I mean, congrats on thank you so first much. Year. We 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 opened in a, in a very difficult time. We opened in two thousand and eight, or in, end of two thousand and seven. <laughs> so there was there was just a, the start of the uh, the financial crisis, and uh, all the media was talking about restaurants closing, and nobody really was talking about new restaurants opening. Yeah, and uh, so it took us a while to to bring some people into the restaurant, and we changed the the direction a little bit, and. And uh, yeah, and then we got New York Magazine gave us a three-star review, and a couple of months later we got a Michelin star, and that obviously helped us a lot to to survive and uh, bring people into the doors. Someone someone noticed. Um, Was the was the next spot after that? Was that Eddie and that was Eddie and the Wolf? Yes, and that's more that's wine. Focus or it has is that the was that with a more of a wine program exactly well uh, the, the the concept of uh, Eddie and the Wolf was um, a mixture of a Huerga, which is a rustic Viennese wine tavern uh, mixed with a, a ski hut so when you go in there there's a lot of warmth there's a lot of decoration and uh, rustic tables communal tables as well. And uh, we we never put a, a sign outside. And uh, once we opened the door, people were just curious what what's going on in here, and they stuck their heads in. And the the, the price point at Eddie Eddie and the Wolf is always lower, so it's really something for the neighborhood. And uh, yeah, I think we're open now for over five years, and it's going very well. That's always, you know, I, I hear from a lot of different chefs. They they talk about, you know, for the neighborhood, for the community, you know, t- when discussing the price point of a menu. Um, it's nice because it's, it's, I'm sure for you, it's exciting and interesting to be able to do something, you know, really decadent and fine and, and over the top and just, you know, sky's the limit. But when it comes down to it, you know, you, we're, in, we're still in New York. These are neighborhoods and communities you have to feed and support the people that you're neighboring with um, just being right. able to to offer them something well I think with uh, with most chefs it's in, in the beginning you want you want to be very creative and you want you want to do something very extravagant and uh, but at the end of the day you you're cooking more for yourself and for for other chefs yeah and not not so much for 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 people because most uh, fine dining restaurants these days they're just overcomplicated and and it, it's too much for Fussy. for for the for a regular customer yeah and uh, so that's why we decided with, with our second project we want to do something which is much more simpler um, we showed already that we are able to to cook we are able to maintain quality but now we want to bring that down and really just be open for for everybody lower price point and uh, just just a fun restaurant that's nice I, you know I, I feel like it, you, you do kind of tend that way it is it is a when you go into those fine dining places or I mean not all of them but you know the over the top places it's 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 for other chefs it's for ego and it's creative and interesting and art but 
it's is it a daily you know meal no probably not you know you'd end up with gout or some other <laughs> <laughs> um although i'm not i, I could probably eat a pork cock a day and get gout too. <laughs> um well i think i still enjoy it i love to go to like high-end restaurants of course. and uh, i mean the, the food is amazing and the artistry behind it and this is what a lot of people do not even understand how much work and how much finesse and technique goes into all those dishes and uh, so i do appreciate that uh, once in a while but but not on a on a daily basis Yeah. No, I mean we we all we all like going out and having nice things. I I complain to my friends. Um, I think they hate me for it. That I'm you know just like over fine service and and being you know taken care of because I'll go I'll go out to a restaurant and you know with friends or, or you know when you're in the industry when you you just you know people things get sent out to you and and then it ends up being like oh, I just wanted a simple meal. And, uh, you know, there's, like, just everything is, like, too rich and too decadent. And, and you know, the servers are with their serviettes. And, and everyone is very upright and polite. And I'm like, I just want to eat with my fingers <laughs> and just, like, <laughs> have a regular person meal. And I, com- I make that complaint. And they're like, shut, shut up. That's not a thing. <laughs> oh, it's too nice. Like, yeah. yeah, sometimes I have this problem just going to visit a friend, sitting at the bar. And he's like, "Can I send you a dish?" I'm like, "Just, just one little one." And then, two hours later, <laughs> seven courses later, <laughs> you can't move. I have to go for two hour run in the morning. <laughs> yeah, just you know, as as long as it's equivalent the time that you're sitting down for the meal. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't figured out a way to work. I, a lot of steps. Walk home. It's like you know, screw the screw the subway. Like this one, we just we need to huff it. Well, that sometimes doesn't do it. Sometimes you need to do a little more than that. <laughs> so this is exciting. Um, with Paul Anner now, you're, is this is this your focus for the moment? Is this just like what you want to be? Or is your mind already wandering to the next my, thing? My mind is always wandering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Paul Anner is fun and uh, Paul Anner is great so far. And uh, I'm definitely continue focusing on that. But uh, I'm I'm always keeping my eyes open for for a new opportunity. Maybe. There are a lot of other other areas in the city and uh, and new places which are just about to, to 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 develop. And I would love to do something else somewhere else. Great, I I look forward to it. Um, thank you so much for for joining us today on the main course. Um, if you guys are interested in uh, checking out any of Wolfgang's food, um, you can uh, stop by Polana and the Bowery. It's on, uh, was it Houston and, and Bowery? It's uh, on Bowery between Houston and Stanton. 265 Bowery is the exact address. Yeah. Um, so uh, check it out. Um, enjoy some beer. Know that it is hangover free. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Happy, happy Sunday, guys.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 